welcome to the Pioneer Valley Church of Christ podcast. Here we will have a collection of sermons, conversations, and other inspirational material to help you grow in your walk with God. We hope you enjoy. What's good, church? My name's Jake, you all heard. And I'm grateful to have the opportunity to share communion with all, uh, with all of you guys today. Um, what is communion? Communion is a time to reflect on Jesus' sacrifice, what he did for us when he went to the cross. Um, and I'm going to share a story today of basically my entire last year and how I can relate that to Jesus' sacrifice at the cross. All right, so freshman year. It's freshman summer. Let's start there. So I went on a Hope Youth Corps, which was so powerful for me. Then I went to teen camp right after that. I was feeling so great with God. felt so connected, and I felt like I was going to do some great things in school. I thought I was going to baptize somebody. I thought I was going to make a sane impact for God. That's not how the story went. So I played football, right? And I was on the football team, and I saw every player, and I saw clicks, and I'm like, I just want to feel involved. I, wanna, I want these guys' approval. So I'd try to act like them. I'd try to talk like them. If they were swearing, I'd swear. If they were talking impurely about girls, I'd talk impurely. I'd just try to fit in. And I'd do everything it takes almost. Um, and I wanted to be friends. I became friends. They invited me over places, parties, events. Uh, and I saw drinking, smoking, everything. I was kind of new to this kind of environment. This was my first year in high school. And I just wanted to fit in. So what did I do? I would drink. I would smoke. I would just give in to all the desires of the world, because I thought it was the cool thing to do. And I felt, I felt fake. I felt super fake, because one night, I'd be smoking some weed on Saturday night, and then go to church the next morning. Everybody's asking, am I okay? Am I okay? I'd just say, I'm good. I'm doing great. And it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel right. And so, as the year went, kept going, I was still living in sin. I felt dark. I felt lost. I was in this, like, hole, and I didn't know how to come out. And it wasn't until February when Charlie and Jack Summers came back or came to church and started making their fiery appearance into this ministry. Their joy, their enthusiasm, their passion for God was inspiring. I remember this one night, I was with Charlie and I was with my dad and we were eating dinner at Buffalo Wild Wings after a midweek or something. Always, Buffalo Wild Wings. That's the crib, you know? Um, So we were at Buffalo Wild Wings. We were eating. I just got to talk to Charlie. I didn't know him well. I was sort of meeting him. I just, he was telling me about his life and how before Christ, when he was living in sin, he was not feeling too great. Um, He was lost. He felt in the dark. I was like, that's exactly what I am right now. That's exactly what I'm feeling right now. And then I'm watching him. As he's going to church after he found Christ and how passionate he is, how great he's doing, and his genuine happiness. So in the middle of that day, in the middle of that uh, dinner, I took a bathroom break, got on the phone with someone I was about to buy marijuana from the next day and canceled it. I'm like, I don't want this. Charlie helped me remember. Charlie helped me remember what I wanted, what was good for me, what was going to help me, what was going to give me genuine happiness like the summer before that. And then I was terrified because I knew if I'm going to repent, I might as well go all the way. So 
I knew the next step was I got, I got to tell my dad. I got to fess up about all this. I was terrified. And when I say terrified, I was so scared, man. I don't even know. Yes, it was just terrifying because I was breaking the law. I was going against him. I was hiding. I was lying to him for the longest time. I didn't know I was going to react. I didn't know how he was going to react or jump on me. I thought I was going to get in a lot of trouble. But I came clean with everything, and he embraced me. He loved me. He showed me grace and mercy. And then I think of the story, the lost son in Luke 15. Son goes out, takes his inheritance from his dad, goes out to the world, does a ton of evil, does tons of sin, gets with prostitutes, is hanging out with sinners all the time. And then when he comes to his senses, when he finds his way back, he sees his dad. Dad's running to him with open arms, shows compassion. I felt, I felt Jesus' love in that situation right there. My dad showed me, embraced me, gave me open arms to come back. And yeah, I, think of, I also think of a scripture in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus on the cross took my sin away from me. He said he forgave me. I walked away. I was in the darkness like the lost son. But Jesus said his grace is sufficient for me and welcomed me back with open arms like the dad. Ask yourself, am I in the darkness? Am I hiding things? Should I come out about some stuff? If there is, you don't have to be afraid. God's grace is sufficient for you too. God died for you, even though we all don't deserve it. We definitely don't deserve it. We all fall sin, fall uh, all sin, fall short of the glory of God. But He has compassion on you and He blesses you. Communion is a reminder of Jesus' sacrifice. You can realize it and remind yourself. Give yourself a fresh start, a chance to come back to God, holy. Because everybody sinned. So God's grace, just remember, take away God's grace is enough and you don't have to live in sin. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thanks for giving me this opportunity to talk to the church today. Come clean about my life. I feel like I've been hiding to them for a while. Uh, but God, I pray this touch someone's heart. I pray people who are hiding or people who are afraid can come out and come to you, Lord, because you're going to embrace them. You love them. Your power is made perfect in people's weaknesses. God, your grace is enough. I pray we can remember that and reflect on the cross today, your sacrifice, the way you died for us so we could have a chance to come to you, Lord. I love you. I pray for this communion. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Fernando! Can you guys hear me? Yes! All right. Good morning, my family. How are you guys doing? Well, as was announced, my name is Fernando Alejandro, for those of you who do not know. And um, my story is that I am a child of this church. I was uh, baptized here at 16 years old. Um, and so I, I've kind of gone through the various stages of life, uh, many of them within these, the walls of this church. So I, I was a teen here. 
I was in the campus ministry, and, uh, and, and I was in the singles ministry. And, I, and for a time, they, they, the, the people were so gracious enough to allow me to lead the singles ministry here, uh, which was an experience that has truly transformed who I am. And so when I look around the room, I see all the familiar faces. I see so many of you who have contributed to my foundation, contributed to who I've become. And I just hope that I can make you all proud as I go out into this world uh, and, and strike out on faith and try to build something great for God. Amen. So the reason I'm not here in Pioneer Valley is that I got married. I, I moved down to Miami, Florida. Uh, I was married to my wife. This was about five going on six years back. Um, and uh, when I got married, I became a stepdad uh, to two boys. The oldest right now is 19. He's in college. Um, the, the younger one, he's 15, and he's, he's about to go into sophomore year of high school. Uh, so time flies very quickly. And uh, then three years back, we had the birth of our daughter. Uh, and so she's three years old right now. She's uh, in the classroom in the back. My wife's in the back. Uh, you guys will see her running around a bit. Uh, but that, that completed our, our family picture. And so I've, uh, I'm a proud stepdad. I'm a proud father. And I, I've been able to just experience so much and learn so much just from, from that role. I mean, God teaches us so much just through our family dynamics and certainly with giving us the beauty of, of parenthood. Mm -hmm. I wanted to catch you up a little bit on some happenings with me. I am uh, back in my master's program. Some of you may have known that while I was here, I was working on a master's program. And uh, when I got married, I had to leave it behind. Uh, but God was gracious to bring me right back to the Masters of Divinity. And so I'm working on that program. I would appreciate your prayers. I have to learn Hebrew and Greek and, and, and really get into the word, which is amazing. Uh, but it's certainly extending the, the boundaries of my mind, let's say. Um, also, I have a book coming out <clears throat> by God's grace, uh, and it's related to singles ministry. Uh, so, you know, I'll keep you all posted with the details on that. <clears throat> and, you know, I'm happy to announce that the Miami church really has wrapped their arms around us. They, they really took us in. They've, they've, they've really done a great job investing in, in myself and Rosie. Uh, we really feel like we're family there. Um, but that being said, I know that this is my family. I know that you all are my foundation. You guys are the people who, who communicated the gospel to me. And it's a, as a result of the faith that you guys have, have put into this church and into me specifically that I am able to stand before you today. So thank you to all of you. <laughs> and I, I want to talk today, the title of the message is Bring Them to the Garden. Bring them to the garden. What we're going to do, we're going to start in Genesis. And then we're going to go all the way to Revelation. And then we're going to circle back to the Gospels. And so if you have about 14 hours, we'll be able to... I'm going to do this all in as short amount of time as possible. You know, over this last year, uh, for one of my classes, I was doing a research project. I was looking at, at various statistics, and one thing that I came across was this idea that over the last several decades, religious participation in the United States has been on a decline. Mm -hmm. And you see it more so with the younger generations, that 
that the younger generation especially, but it's also you know, kind of multi-generational on that level, uh, have been sort of moving away from any sort of established religious faith. And as we've sort of seen this decline year over year, we also have been seeing some really troubling statistics. You know, over, the, over, the, over the last 20 years, while I was looking at these numbers, we, we've seen a 49% increase of death by alcohol abuse between 2006 and 2019. Many of you are aware that there's been an opioid crisis such that the number of people who have passed away because of overdoses has doubled, more than doubled, in the period between 2000 and 2010 and 2010 to the present. Suicide's been on the increase. And unfortunately, we can't turn on a TV without seeing news about another mass shooting. And while we're seeing all these phenomena manifest, certain academics have been studying what they're calling a meaning crisis. They've dubbed it a meaning crisis. What they're saying is that people are, are having a loss of meaning. They've been separated from any sort of religious foundation, the foundation that a lot of community was, was revolving around. And as a result of losing that, they haven't replaced it with anything that quite fulfills what they need. And as a result, they're losing meaning. There's this idea that what is life worth? What's the point? And this sort of ideology is creeping in through society, and the end result of it is that it's leading people to places of despair. It's leading people to places of isolation. It's leading people to places of darkness. And this isolation is really pronounced, where, to the point where people choose or desire more to interact online than they do in person. It's this, it's this sort of breakdown of what community is. You know, Facebook recently changed their name to Meta. And the reason for that is that they are switching to the Metaverse. And for those of you who don't know what the Metaverse is, it's basically where you go online, you create an avatar, and you navigate the world of the internet as this avatar. And so you can go to the bank as your avatar. You can go to school, go hang out in a club, all online. And it's this sense of community while you're sitting home all by yourself. And it's incredible to think that in a time period where, as a humanity overall, we've experienced the greatest economic prosperity, the time that we've experienced the greatest technological innovation, the time where we've experienced scientific progress that our ancestors could have never dreamed of, it would have looked like magic to them. It's incredible that despite all of these innovations, we still sit down and say we are losing meaning. Yep. That there isn't meaning, that we aren't fulfilled by all these things. Wow. Mm -hmm. And what I would hold is that the reason for that is that although the secular world has created much innovation, has created economic prosperity, has, has provided a lot of answers to practical problems. They can never fulfill the spiritual side of our lives. Right. And the issue is that the secular world does not understand who or what we are. Mm -hmm. But I believe that scripture has that answer. On, and we're going to look over in Genesis chapter 2. Come on, bro. In Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 7, 
It reads, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. Down in verse 15, it reads on, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, this verse really describes something interesting about humanity. It's saying that God took the dirt of the earth and formed man. But at that point, it was still not a man. It was not an animated being. It wasn't until he breathed the breath of life into that dirt he had formed out of the ground that it suddenly took the form of a human. And this tells us something interesting. It tells us that we are both natural of nature but we are also of spirit. That breath of life, that animating spirit that God gave us, that is a a vital part of who we are. It's a vital part of our existence. And what happened after that is that it says God planted a garden in Eden, and then he took man from outside of the garden and placed him inside the garden. And so it's this interesting idea that man was created, this garden was created, and God combined the two. He put man into the garden. And what was the garden? Well, it was a place where there was abundant food. There was abundant water. It tells us that the trees were pleasing to the eye. There was this aesthetic beauty that appealed to mankind. It tells us that man had a purpose, that they had a job to do, work to fulfill in maintaining the garden. It tells us that we had communion with God, And you think about what a garden is. A garden is nature contained, right? I don't know if any of you have been down to Florida. We have the Everglades in Miami. If you ever go into the Everglades, there's like pythons and alligators and things that want to eat you. And it's a very unsettling experience being out there. It's really cool. You can see the alligators. And, and you know, you, you understand that this thing could maul me at any point if it desired to. It's freaky. That's not a garden. We don't plant gardens and then bring alligators into them, right? We don't bring in pythons into our gardens. What we do instead is we say, you know what? We're going to contain nature in a way that's going to be suitable for our purposes. That's what a garden is. So imagine God putting together a garden and maintaining nature, sustaining nature, and saying, you know what? Nature can only go this far and no further. It's, It's difficult to imagine a garden of Eden where things like disease or viruses existed. It's hard to to imagine a Garden of Eden where they had to fear for earthquakes because God can contain the powers of nature. So we had safety. We had communion with God. There was life. And in the garden, both our natural existence and our spiritual existence was fulfilled. And as a result, we had wholeness. But then we have the fall. 
the fall of mankind, you, you see the story, this serpent comes in. And this serpent is this deceptive spirit, right? He's speaking to them and he's, he's telling them, you know, God told you not to do that, but so what? Go eat from the fruit that you were not supposed to eat from. And when you hear the description of it, it talks about how the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it was a fruit that appealed to the body, that it was good for food, for eating. It appealed to the mind, that it would give you wisdom. It appealed to the, to the heart, the emotion, that it was beautiful, and aesthetically beautiful. The only thing it did not appeal to was the spirit. What the serpent was doing is he was telling mankind, live by the flesh. It appeals to the mind, it appeals to the body, it appeals to the emotion. That's the only place you need to live. Separate yourself from the spirit and live like your natural self. And in so doing, he separates us from the spirit. And that's what they did. They, they acted out. They, they went and disobeyed God. And we'll pick up the story in Genesis 3, verse 21, where it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So this is the unfortunate story. Man was created outside of the garden, placed into the garden, and now was sent back out into the land from which they were taken. The problem is that the land that we are, from which we were taken can only fulfill our natural sides. It cannot fulfill our spirit. And there, to get back into the garden, we have to pass through judgment. There's a flashing sword, the flaming sword. It's a symbol of judgment that to get back in, we have to be judged. And you think about it. There was only one tree they were told not to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it means that the tree of life was always accessible to them. They didn't eat from it. So God always intended for man to have life. But we blew it. And yet, and yet, I would hold that there's echoes of the garden within humanity down to this day. Think about it. We of all creatures, we look at death as something that is unusual, that is unfair, that is absurd. When it happens in our lives, we certainly grieve, but there's this sense that this shouldn't be. When we see suffering, what do we do? We say, this is wrong, this shouldn't exist. When we see famines, we see wars, we see destruction in this world, we say, this is terrible, this should not exist. If we were solely natural beings, we would say, so what? It's natural, it's nature. Death is a part of nature, disease is a part of nature. Famine is a part of nature. Suffering is a part of nature. Why would we be concerned about it? It's because something deep within us tells us that we were made for something else. There's something in us that calls to us. And what do we do as a humanity? We mobilize. We mobilize and fight famine. We mobilize and fight disease. We mobilize and try to end war. We mobilize ourselves to put ourselves against these very things we sense are encroaching on on, on what we believe to be, on what we believe to be good. 
We're attempting to restore the garden constantly, whether we know it or not. And it's because something within us tells us that we were made for something else. I'm going to jump over to Revelations 22. Revelations 22. I told you we were going for a ride, right? Revelations 22, in verse 1, we see the garden make an appearance again. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever." It's this interesting idea when you get to Revelation. It tells us that the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven. It comes down onto earth. It's a city. But then within the city, it's depicted the tree of life. It's basically saying that within the city, the garden is restored. And all the aspects of the garden are restored with it. We have God, communion with God stay, uh, living there. We have the peace. We have the healing. We have the light. We have the life of God's presence and the tree of life, the, the leaves of which are for the healing of the nation communion with God again. The garden is the destiny of humanity. But the problem still stands. We have to pass through judgment. We still have to pass through judgment. And this is where Jesus comes into the picture. You know, John 10.10 tells us that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus came that we may have life and have it to the full. I used to always see this as just a promise for my life in the here and now. That I would have blessings in this life, but I've come to understand that there's no way we can have fullness of life until the eternity. That eternity really is our destiny, and that's what Jesus came to give us. You consider Jesus' ministry, the things that he did here. He He knew that we would not pass through judgment easily. We were not going to make it through that judgment. And so he says himself over in Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What did he come to do? He came to stand in our place of judgment. He came to take the judgment that was, that was going to be leveled at us. And in taking that judgment upon himself, what he's done is he's now left the gate open to the garden. He's now left the, the, the entrance of the garden open so that we can pass through And he did this with his life. And you think about Jesus' ministry, right? He he went around, he did these amazing things. He preached these amazing things. And he was teaching the people these amazing things. And oftentimes he performed these miracles, right? And miracles, they, they, they have, you know, they serve multiple functions. One side is just that, you know, if I were to like perform a miracle today and then preach to you, you guys would probably listen to me a little more intently. Right? Like, hey, let's listen to that guy. (laughs) He might have something to share. So certainly it serves that sort of role, those miracles. But I would hold that the miracles also serve another function. 
I would hold that the miracles are a promise that the garden is real. Think about it. Jesus feeds the 5,000. He takes a loaf of bread, splits it up, and feeds 5,000 people. What is he, he showing with that? He's showing us that we can trust that he comes from a place where food is abundant. When you see him driving out demons with a mere word, what is he showing us? He's showing us that he comes from a place where evil can be commanded away. When he heals diseases, what is he showing us? He's showing us that he comes from a place where disease does not exist. Think about it. He restored lepers. He healed the eyes of those who could not see. He restored the ears and the tongues of those who could not hear or speak. He restored the legs of those who could not walk, the hands of those who could not touch. What was he doing? He was showing that he comes from a place where the body could be restored fully. There's this scene where he's on a boat asleep, and, and there's a storm. And his disciples are really freaking out. And they're like, Jesus, like, don't you care? Aren't you going to save us? And he wakes up, and he commands the storm and the wave, and it goes away. What does this tell us? It tells us that he comes from a place where no natural disaster has more power than him. He brought people back from the dead. He brought back Lazarus, and of course, he himself resurrected. What does that tell us? It tells us that he comes from a place where death has been defeated. And it's because of that that we can stay as it does in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, that death has been swallowed up in victory. Mm-hmm. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? What a powerful statement that is. The very thing that our heart's been telling us all along, that death should not exist, that death is absurd, uh-huh. it's being proven true. Yeah. And think about it. Jesus is said to have wept only a couple times in Scripture. One of those was at Lazarus's, uh, because of Lazarus's death. Jesus knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus, and even still, he connects with the pain and the absurdity of it. He connects with the pain of death, and then he stands there and weeps with all of us because he knows that that death is unnatural for us, for the people who should be in the garden. So why do I tell you all this? Why do we go through all this? Why does this matter? Well, let's look over at Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16, it reads, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know, Jesus conquered death. He returns, and then what does he tell us to do? He says, I have a mission for you. I want you to go and proclaim the message of my resurrection to this world. I want you to go and make disciples. I want you to go and baptize them. I want you to go and teach them all that I have taught you. Why? Because he has restored the garden. The garden has been restored to mankind, and we know the way there. He says, you guys have the power to bring people back to the garden, and I'm giving that to you. I'm commissioning you to go fulfill humanity's destiny. 
The deepest longings of humanity are fulfilled in the garden alone. And that's what we have. That's what we have to offer this world. Consider that your mouth is the gatekeepers of restoration for the world. Your mouth is the gatekeepers of restoration for this world. When you invite someone into Bible study and you, you read the Bible with them, you show someone the Bible, what are you doing? Well, you're inviting peace. You're inviting life. You're inviting restoration. You're inviting salvation into the world. When we invite someone to church, what are we doing? We're inviting them to the only place on earth that's going to exist for eternity. Amen. We can all belong to schools and, and jobs and, and social clubs. Those are going to go away. They will not last. But this here, what happens on a Sunday morning, this lasts for eternity. And this is where I want to encourage because I, I, know, I know the Sharmas left recently. Uh, and I know that that's... Uh, with a heavy heart that many people ex experience them leaving. Um, and I know that their contributions to me uh, have been so invaluable. But I want to encourage you all here that the Pioneer Valley Church of Christ is an eternal body. There is a future for you. There is more to come. God has not abandoned you. God has not left you behind. God has a plan and a purpose for Pioneer Valley Church of Christ. And he has a plan for the Pioneer Valley. And that means that you all are going to be that light and that lamp for the Pioneer Valley. You are going to bring people to salvation here in the Pioneer Valley. You are all going to participate with God and the Holy Spirit in bringing eternity to the Pioneer Valley. I think about this when I saw uh, uh, Jake doing the communion up here. You know, 22 years ago, I was in a teen ministry led by Steve Miller led by Jamie Quist. It was people like Steve and Jamie who showed me how to be open. People like them who showed me what it was to confess, to be real about my life, and to see Jake standing up here, being real and vulnerable. It just, it, it, it gave me that, that assurity that this really is gonna happen for eternity. There is continuity, there is a spirit here at work. What was going on 22 years back with Steve is happening in his son today. We can put our trust in that. We can put our faith in that because our God is eternal. Our mission is eternal. And the garden is our destiny. Our mission is to restore humanity to its rightful place, communion with God in his presence. And I would hold that everything we discussed before the despair, the loneliness, the isolation, that you all have the answer to that. Amen. You all have this gospel message that will free people from the lack of community, will free people from that darkness, will free people from the isolation, and will free people from the, the, the being lost, just the, 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 the place we were all in that Jake described, mm -hmm. where he said, I was sinning and didn't know why, mm -hmm. and I felt terrible. You know what this world tells you to do when you feel terrible about your sin? It tells you to do it even more. Yep. You just haven't done it enough. Right. The world wants to entrap us. Yes. Sin will entrap us. Mm -hmm. That's what the snake was doing in the garden. It's the same trick being played over and over. Yeah. But we have the words of life. And what I have to ask is, after everything that's gone on with the pandemic, 
do we in the Pioneer Valley Church of Christ still believe all this to be true? Do you still believe that the gospel is true? Do you still believe that the world needs to be saved? Do you still believe that you have the message of salvation in your hands? That you have something to offer this world? You have the solution to the world's problems? Do you still believe these things? You know, I know that back in Miami, after everything that's gone on with the pandemic, I know it's hurt a lot of people's faith. They question, can God really be good? They question, really, what is going on when when we, we can face these calamities? Is God really with us? And it takes me to the words of Jesus in John 16, 33, where he states, it's a promise. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. What's he assuring us? He's saying, look, on this side of eternity, you can face trouble. You can, you can expect the viruses. You can expect the wars. You can expect the famines. You can expect the calamities. You can expect the sufferings. But take heart. Because it's all been overcome. And the garden is a place where none of that exists. And that's where you're going. That's where you're destined to go. Just as the miracles of Christ were proclaiming to the world that the garden was real, so our lives should proclaim to the world that the garden is real. And this is why why sin can be so destructive in a community of faith. Because when we live in sin, what we're telling the world is that we don't really believe that the garden is real. And if we don't believe it's real, why should anyone else? If we don't believe it's real, does it really even exist? It's upon us to show the world that this is truly our destiny, that we believe it with all our being, and we back it up with our actions. Mm-hmm. And that is the church's mission, to proclaim the garden, to proclaim heaven, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim restoration in this world. And there are people in all of our lives that need it. Mm-hmm. There are people we know, may- maybe people we grab lunch with, people we see in our workplaces, people we see in school, people that are family members that we spend time with that yeah. need to hear this message. And the question is, will you bring them to the garden? Thank you, my family. This has been an episode of the Pioneer Valley Church of Christ podcast. To learn more about us, visit our website at www.pioneervalleycoc.org.